0: And while we're getting carried away, Joe, Jason Knight reminds me a little bit of young Roy Keane. But while we're in full buzz at the moment, I think I'll just throw that in there and, and heap unnecessary pressure on the show.
1: Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts, and download the OTB Sports app.
0: Oh the shape that will the fans down. Can we not lock it? It's
2: a fact. i love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladiccio, they'd probably say I was more of a tactical genius. I answer questions on anything. Uh, Religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you, except for those two, have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football.
0: Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33, the Football happier here in Off the Ball End of call here with you for the next hour or so Up until about 10 o'clock If you want to get in touch with the show tonight You can text us on 53106 Or you can uh, tweet us as well At Team33, that's all spelled out in words Now, we did record a podcast on Thursday evening Talking about the next Manchester United manager Who it's going to be Mauricio Pochettino had been the favourite at that point And we had to scrap the entire thing Because about an hour later Ralph Ragnick was basically announced As the interim boss at Manchester United Colm Buig is in studio with me now. Colm, how are you getting on?
1: And uh, lovely to see you in person. Yeah, it's about a year and a half. I know. How
0: long before we stop the it's great to see you for the first time in two years in studio conversation? I had it with Phil a couple of weeks ago as well.
1: Yeah, but this is actually the case for the two of us True. as we speak. So it's uh, it's like not saying Happy Christmas and Christmas Day.
0: So it's just one and done.
1: Uh, well, I mean, it depends when I see you next because the statute of limitations could have expired.
0: Well, if you ask Kenny Cunningham about any of this, He'll give you a straight enough answer. I don't know if you remember his New Year's Eve conversation.
1: No, go on. Oh, yeah, yeah. I Don't have to stop saying Happy New Year. Yeah, basically the day after New Year's Day,
0: stop saying Happy New Year. Ah, oh, it's
1: like the 17th of January.
0: Yeah, it's around that. Yeah. Whenever you go back to work. Uh, anyway, Ralph Ragnick, he is the Manchester United interim boss. This is a very interesting move. And immediately my head went into overdrive thinking, OK, well, if Ralph Ragnick is the interim boss, then at the end of the season... He'll be moved upstairs into the director of football role mm-hmm. and Manchester United will have an actual person in the board level that knows what he's doing in terms of his football knowledge. I think I'm giving United a little bit too much credit with that because I don't know if they intend to do that or not.
1: Um, you just can't trust Manchester United's decision makers. You really can't. I mean, we still don't know when Woodward's leaving and then you have Richard Arnold, Matt George. They're all good buddies. They're all going to back each other up. You'd worry that there's not enough dissenting voices there. Darren Fletcher starting off. John Murth has pretty uh, raw in his role. Um, if Ragnac stays on and really is influential for the following two years from the summer onwards, I think it's a brilliant appointment. Um, with the Pacchettino link as well, I still still would love him as first choice. He worked under similar enough um, status or structure with uh, Paul Mitchell at Anamatspur. And that seemed to work well, but Ragnik is so all-consuming in his control that Mm -hmm. that would be my one concern. But look, I'm really, really happy at the moment as United fan, the happiest I've been in a long, long time, because there is some semblance of a plan.
0: Yeah, it looks that way. And in theory, if that does come about, then Ragnik has the CV to back up what he's doing. If people are unfamiliar with what he, he has done... He had a long period of teams managed. He's been managing uh, teams since the eighties, but really had a revolution as it c- came to like the early nineties with Schalke, Hoffenheim, Schalke again, RB Leipzig. Then when Leipzig came about, and then he was he's been working at board level for RB essentially uh, with the Salzburg side and with Leipzig as well. And more recently, he's been at board level with. Locomotive Moscow in the Russian League. So he's got a long CV of teams doing very well, teams being Mm forward-thinking, I think is a key one here, and bringing teams into a modern way of doing things. My only issue with the PSG link is that we're already seeing issues between Pochettino and Leonardo. So if Pochettino is intended to be the United boss at the end of the season, is he going to have the same issues with Ragnik because Ragnik is more all-encompassing than Leonardo
1: albeit he seems to know what he's doing more well the one benefit of that right is that time is uh, is actually on our side here as United fans because Pochettino basically has six months to think about that Mm -hmm. so does he want to work under the all-encompassing nature of someone like Ragnik with with the Leonardo problem I believe that that's a problem club-wide with Leonardo it's not just Pochettino so that might be a personality clash anyway um, the thing with Ragnick is if you buy into his methods you are going to be you know, beautifully rewarded and I suppose Pacchettino will, will have to accept that he's going to have to give up a bit of power and we know that um big attraction to jobs is having autonomy so he may have to compromise his beliefs there but he's always wanted a Manchester United job and if mm-hmm. this is the way it's going to be then, then maybe he'll have to compromise on that but also he'll know that he has someone upstairs who really knows what they're doing that for me is a massive pro like.
0: well that is that is a key point to all this because if you look at Leonardo's track record fell out with Unai Emery yeah. he fell out with Thomas Tuchel and he fell, he's fallen out with Pochettino already in his career and it all comes down to the players that he's bringing into the club and if you look at PSG's record of bringing in players yes they're big names but they don't really follow any structure or plan it's you know, Sergio Ramos, Donnarumma, I know that was a big issue for Pochettino because he already has a goalkeeper uh, that's d- good enough to play mm. Champions League football. And then you're bringing in players like Leo Messi, who is a massive name, always going to sign Messi if you have, have the opportunity. But if you're a manager like Pochettino who wants to implement a, a press, mm. we saw on on Wednesday night against Man City, Leo Messi is not going to do that. So I think if Ragnick is given a, a manager like Pochettino if they're able to get their heads together, this is how I want to play, I think Ragnik is a smart enough operator that he can identify the players that Pochettino is going to be able to work with. Mm,
1: that's what I mean. This is like, a, it really is like a six-month probation period for everybody concerned here in the new era and everyone's going to see, well, does this, this suit all of us? And um, everyone's focusing on the Cristiano Ronaldo conundrum now and Ronaldo's not going to buy into Gegenpress. Press. How could he possibly do that? He's never done it in his career and he's in his mid to late 30s, why would he do it now? But for me, forget about Ronaldo, right? He, in Basically, short term, he's going to be gone anyway, whether it's next summer or the summer after. It's not a big issue in United's long-term history, or long-term future, sorry. For me, it would be like Jadon Sancho, Donny van de Beek, Jesse Lingard. These are players who would really buy into Rangnick's methods, and then suddenly you have this real continental style that is not reliant on intangible history, or Alex Ferguson in general. And I mean, we all loved those, loved those years as a United fans. We were brought up in it. I personally was spoiled as a United fan. And it's, it's actually very difficult to be a United fan the last decade as a result because we're so used to success. But it's a new era. That era's gone. We can always look back on it. That's what reading in the years is for. You look back on great times, but you have to move on. And this is the first time the United, for me, since Alex Ferguson left in May 2013, have really started to move on. Yeah,
0: Well, Zatan Ibrahimovic mentioned that in his interview with the Guardian during the week that... Everything seemed to be in the past tense. Yeah, he did. Yeah, at, I read that. At yeah. Trafford and he found that very weird because he mm. was like, I'm here now. This, I wasn't yeah. here 10 years ago. This is what I want to do. He
1: was actually very good for that United side. Yeah, people forget yeah, about Slatan's uh, time at United because it was pretty short and sweet. But that 2016 17 season, he was brilliant. Mm. League Cup final against Southampton.
0: I don't want to make the comparison with Arsenal because I don't believe that United got into the same. Situation as Arsenal because simply they're a bigger club in terms of their commercial operations and the the money that they have. But it seemed to me a very scary opportunity that United could potentially go down the way of Arsenal where they suddenly find themselves as a mid-table side and the people at board level. And I think in a way you can draw similarities to the fact that in Arsene Wenger's last couple of years, he was there to keep them in the Champions League Mm -hmm. and they fell out of it afterwards. And I think there are certain people within the United Board level that would have been happy enough to get Champions League football because that meant money. It meant nothing in terms of football, but they were happy
1: enough just to keep that ticking over. For owners with no emotional connection to a club, what's the real significant difference between consistent top four finishing because all four clubs qualify automatically Mm. or winning the league?
0: It's marginal. Do you know? Like, a marginal difference in terms of what's the difference, the money, and in, in terms of the the end game for what? Yeah. They're and in a way, not that I sympathise with them because it's it, it be all and end all is football. When you're when you're in charge of a football club, you should be aiming to be successful as a football club, not as a business. But if you're brought in there as a commercial operator, your your job is not to finish first in the table. Your job is to make sure that money keeps coming in. And if if you can get someone that. Can get Champions League football consistently, then you're going to be happy enough in your job, um, and I think that's probably one of those issues that United that everyone
1: was happy in their own job, but the club itself was yeah. like
0: a bit of a, a lull.
1: But we th- United have done so well as a as a business, mm. so you know the Glazers will say, well, what's the big problem here? Yeah, really, you know. Uh, 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 and
0: as a football club, they haven't done horrendously. If you in, in comparison to United of Old, in comparison to where United should be aiming for, mm. they've done pretty bad. But they've won a Europa League in that period, they've won a League Cup in that period, they've won an FA Cup in that period. I'm not saying that's acceptable for a club the size of United, but it is not Arsenal. And what Arsenal
1: have been doing. No, but I mean Arsenal did have a lot of FA Cups in and Arsenal Venger's latter years. Um and but United's uh, success was really two years since Ferguson, twenty sixteen with the FA Cup and then twenty seventeen under Mourinho was actually great C V wise. And then the following season, Mourinho gets United second, uh way behind Manchester City, but still second. But that was a terrible time, the club. Like, so you know what was? We were kind of asking ourselves, what? What's the point in all this success if everyone's miserable? Mm. Um, like, I, I'm going to put it this. I'm going to put it back to you this way. How many Premier League titles will United win in the next decade?
0: I'm not going to give an answer to that
1: because you don't know. I just don't know. But it's I mean, and, uh, Chelsea for me and Man
0: City and Liverpool are so far ahead at the moment right. that I can't see them winning it in the next five years.
1: Well, yeah, I wasn't asked. I wasn't just asking for the crack there because my follow up was going to be what number would matter to you or for better or for worse you know? I think what do you want as a United all, fan
0: all considering the the noughties period where United were so successful if you look back at that it was competing with one side really it was competing with Arsenal well at Chelsea at the, at the, the latter, Chelsea, latter times yeah Chelsea yeah. So once you got into the 2004 period that's yeah. where it started it almost shifted from Arsenal to, to Chelsea yeah. and then you're really competing with them sides now you're competing with yeah. Liverpool, who are way ahead, Chelsea are way ahead, Man City are way ahead and have far more money than anyone else. And suddenly Newcastle, in the next decade, might actually become a real title contestant as well if they can get it right with their uh, with their money. So I think in the next 10 years, if United won three titles, that would be a
1: very successful period. But you said City have the most money, but sure, United have spent the most. They do,
0: but United sort of have to give some sort of uh, I don't know it's almost a puppet show at United that they have to at least act sort of like a business whereas Manchester City just don't they can spend as much money as they want
1: yeah well it's easier being Man City because there's not as many eyes on you I suppose and Mm -hmm. all eyes in the world are on United but it's a business but I
0: was also looking at this and this is sort of a a tangent in a way but uh, the Champions League during the week Chelsea were so impressive against Juventus Man City won against PSG with uh, you know, a really strong PSG side, Liverpool top in the group. United, even a, as poor as they have been, they're they're top of their group as well in the Champions League. And then, if you look at it, it completely makes sense. In charge of Man City, you have Pep Guardiola. In in charge of Liverpool, you have Jurgen Klopp, and in charge of Chelsea, you have Thomas Tuchel. They're the three best managers in the world, so of course they're going to be winning. And um, so, it really all depends on if Pochettino takes this United job, and if he can relive some of the things that he's done with Tottenham to a higher extent, can United compete with the three best managers in the world? Because Mm. they're not going anywhere with their respective clubs. So
1: it's going to be tough. It's going to be an uphill battle. But that that point there you made at the end is interesting because eventually they will go somewhere with those clubs. I mean, Klopp and Pep, they're probably at the latter half of their time. Mm at each club
0: at some point they will
1: yeah of course they will so who's going to come in then is, is one thing and the other thing with uh, Ralph Wagnick in the meantime for the rest of the season he's never really worked as a manager with massively high profile players he's always developed players and his preferences are under 23 players he wants young energetic ones a bit, a bit more like Moneyball like and uh, with United he's dealing with massive characters and massive egos and I wonder I do wonder would that be a bit of a challenge for him because he really does need everyone to buy into his methods. Having said that, if Ronaldo is um, as disgruntled as he reportedly is with the soldier tenure, then maybe this is—you know—this is absolutely fine for him. I work under Ragnar, no problem.
0: As Roy Keane put it, lepers don't change their stripes. You know,
1: they uh, apparently spots. don't. Spot, their yeah. I, I, I let you credit yourself <laughs> for that. Yeah. They don't
0: change their spots. So <laughs> I'll be very interested to see what happens with this United team over the next six months. Just before we finish up, earlier on off the ball, we heard. Uh, the Arsenal legend Robert Perez mm. going out and, and talking about his Arsenal career, some of the rivalries between himself, Gary Neville, Man United. At that point, I was doing some research when we were putting together that show and just looking at, you, like, you always remember the Arsenal United rivalry, but you don't remember the little things like how dominant those two sides were. Yeah. From 1995 to 2004, they were the only two sides that won the league.
1: Yeah, yeah, after Blackburn, yeah. That's true. Um, and chances. then
0: between a similar enough period <laughs> from 2001 to 2006, they were the only two sides that won the FA Cup.
1: And that was basically yeah, Arsenal, because United won there. 2004. If, was if it.
0: United won the league, Arsenal won the FA Cup. It was
1: yeah, like, well, United should have won 2005 the FA Cup, but yeah, Arsenal yeah. won on penalties.
0: But that, that's how close they were. So you're abiding memories of Robert Perez as a player. Firstly, I want to say, absolute gent of a man. He laughed at every question. I'm oh not my sure God. If, if he... Was laughing for a particular reason, but he was just infectious in his personality, first of all.
1: So for those listening tonight who haven't heard it yet, myself and Enda were messaging each other during this interview, being like, this is some of the most char- charismatic people we've ever seen. Just his answer and his uh, ability to wink off yeah. a question. Incredible. But really just uh, really interesting his insight the struggles he came up against Gary Neville uh, in the left wing versus right back role. Um, but as as far as Perez the player went, I loved Perez. I was okay. a bit a bit of a guilty pleasure for me like that. I really really loved him, and like this right-footed left-sided player, which is so um, common now, but maybe not as common back then. And the about two thousand and one, two thousand and two, before he had that uh, bad injury against Newcastle, he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. That goal he scored at Villa Park when Peter Schmeichel was in goal for Aston Villa, the lab. Um, he got a great goal at Landfield uh, against Liverpool where he curled it in top corner from about 25 yards out but he was just a phenomenal, phenomenally gifted technical player. Do you remember that goal at White Hart Lane when he was shifting it from right to left foot and then slipped it under Paul Robinson's body? Uh, he had just mo- like great moments. Um, I like Freddie Youngberg too on the other side but Perez was, oh he's beautiful wasn't he? Beautiful player and amazing, his personality amazing, matches amazing, the ability. Yeah,
0: like, I'm, I'm so glad that it did. Absolutely, that's what exactly you said. Yeah, honest. that's what you
1: said. Yeah, he was He was one of my
0: first idols, if you can call that. Even though it was a United sport, I loved watching practice.
1: Why? Why did you love him so much? Because
0: I was a winger at uh, that point. And I, right-footed left-sider. Yeah. So I, I just loved watching what he was able to do with the ball. And if, if you listen to the interview, what he did with us, he speaks about what Wenger wanted from him. And it was basically, get your touch right, get your dribbles, and then pass the ball off. And that's essentially what he did. He was a very simple player, <laughs> but he made it look so elegant and so beautiful at times. The... Interesting thing about him, I was listening to an interview with Arsene Wenger on the uh, Ian Wright podcast in the Ringer yeah. FC, and he was talking about that great team and about Henri and about Bergkamp And then he used a phrase which I thought described Perez perfectly. He was the smiling killer. That's how he described him because mm. he was so happy on the pitch. I think he, like, <laughs> even when he was talking about the United situation in the tunnel, he was like, Yeah, it was sensational, it was brilliant. It was I it was egging them on to go fight. He loved it. Um, but, yeah, he was just so clinical in everything he did. The passing to Henri, they were on the same wavelength every, every time. And I just wonder how much better he would have been in a modern system now. Like, imagine he was an inverted forward now with the wingbacks overlapping. And he was he was basically a Salah on the other side. 10, 15 years before Salah even came... Into existence
1: in that position. Well he had different qualities to Salah. I mean, Sala Salah's much quicker mm. and probably more clinical, but Perez was a, I think a much better all round footballer. Um he had he had such an odd style, Perez. He was quite wide footed in his running and he didn't he wasn't particularly fast, but he was very effective in his running, a bit like Robbie Fowler was. Um and I loved that he had that hybrid tunnel incident. He talked about it like he was a fan, like he was watching it too. I actually can I can't picture where Perez was. In no. that tunnel, but so uh,
0: probably would have been somewhere in the back.
1: Presumably, yeah, staying out of trouble, staying out of dodge. But he, yeah, he had a lovely balance of you know, he he, he really enjoyed his career. Um, he wasn't a rough player, and you would think, oh, maybe he's a bit soft, quote unquote, for the Premier League. But he really wasn't. He was so effective, wasn't he? Because he was able to ride those challenges well, and not no, get involved in that, in that side that of it. Period was
0: soft, really.
1: oh, absolutely, and uh, but he was able to ride all those challenges, and uh, you know, he didn't get involved in that side of the thing because he was good enough as a player not to. Uh, I would have loved them at United I think that, I actually do think that era for him was great we did ask him where he'd play if he was playing nowadays and he did say part of a front three and quite versatile probably on the left so many players play on the left don't they right footed it's a real clogged up area of the pitch
0: also mentioned Ashley Cole yeah. at Arsenal again I was looking at this and you know you can't help but thinking that was a turning point in Arsenal's you know, when he club left club tenure when Ashley left oh yeah leave. totally or Ashley Cole sorry because it was right around the period 2006. They'd just moved to the Emirates. And yes. yep. they sold them to their biggest rival at Crazy. that point in time in Chelsea. So that was when Arsenal turned into the modern-day Arsenal. And if you listen or watch or read Arsene Wenger's book, there's a lot going on in the background of Arsenal that led them to be go from where they were as a club mm. to now. And a lot of it had to do with the Emirates, which is insane when you think about modern day football even like the likes of Tottenham moving to a billion dollar stadium and the Emirates bankrupt Arsenal to the point where they had to sell all their best players to their rivals
1: yeah well and just so it was not a fire sale, it was so gradual which is probably more painful again Um yeah, that deal that they got Arsenal wasn't even particularly great, wasn't it? It was like five million plus William Gallas, I think. Was that it about was it? Very low from yeah. Chelsea. Uh, now Gallas is a fine player. Well,
0: Gallas went on to captain. And yeah,
1: but him. I mean, he wasn't exactly the most uh, positively influential person either. Like their famous Birmingham City match in 2011, when um, when the the bad injury happened to what's the striker? He's gone from my head now. The Brazilian-born striker who played for Shakhtar Donetsk. Left footed. What was his name? Everyone's shouting at this. Eduardo. Eduardo. Yeah. Eduardo. Andrew there in the box is screaming at us. He, he but no I couldn't hear he him. Left Wasn't he brilliant? And anyway, they, he, terrible injury. The he never came see. back from that, really. Yeah. Uh, but I remember Gallas just uh, strapping on the pitch afterwards, sitting down like. That's remember that? Was. I
0: couldn't remember. Yeah. I, could, I could picture him. That was the head. game. Yeah. Final point on this Arsenal stuff uh, on Perez, because I forgot to mention it just before we wrap up. The wine kit. Yes or no? I loved it. Probably. The last
1: season of Highbury? Yeah. yeah. that's what I think of when I think of Perez, yes. funnily enough. Yeah. yeah. That I was nice, yeah. The commemorative jersey. It was nice, but I, I, I don't want to be giving too much credit to Arsenal now and it has been a bit of an Arsenal love in this latter so part.
0: We have to balance out the Man United stuff somehow. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think of the Ralph Ragnick appointment at Manchester United? If you want to f- uh, listen to that Robert Perez interview, it is available on podcast now if you go to the OTB football show uh, segment in the OTB podcast network which you can get on the OTB sports app or in your app store and Spotify as well. We'll be back after the break with the remainder of the show that did not get tossed out which includes uh, Rory Carberry and Philip Egan back after this.
1: Look, I think Atalanta look more odds on to get a third here, unless Manchester United come up with with another moment of we magic. All know what's, we all know what's coming at the end of this game, Damien. Absolutely. Don't, don't don't pretend we don't, don't pretend otherwise. Don't yeah. pretend that Atalanta are going to go three-one up here. What we're going to see here is Cristiano Ronaldo is going to stay on the pitch, despite the fact that he's looked, you know, leggy and, and a little bit out of sorts tonight. He's going to stay on the pitch and he's going to get an equaliser with about a minute or two to go.
3: And then the next thing you know, when is back there doing a defensive shift. Ronaldo!
0: Welcome back to team 33 and a call here with you on up until about 10 o'clock this evening. I'm joined on the line by Philip Egan and by Rory Carberry as well, because we're chatting all things champions league this week, but we've parked that. If you want to get that, you can get it in the podcast, which is on the OTB sports app. Now I do want to talk about the uh, world cup situation and Ireland's uh, bid in a little sec, but Rory, I wanted to touch on something with you. Uh, to do with Celtic, because you were actually at the the Livingston game a couple of weeks ago where there was a tennis ball protest. Essentially, if people haven't been following this story, is that Bernard Higgins, who was previously uh, in in charge in in a high-ranking position within the UK police force, is being um, hired by Celtic as part of their security uh, teams. And for people who don't know who Bernard Higgins is, he was heavily involved in setting up the Offensive Behaviour Football Act, which in Scotland has led to a high level of police aggression against football fans, mainly against Celtic and Rangers fans, but in general against football fans as well. It gives them very strong powers against people who are essentially going to watch football and, and not really committing any crimes. Firstly, the tennis ball protest, it wasn't liked by a lot of people, but I think you know, fans have the right to do this if they want to do this. Um, what's your thoughts in general? I see a 100 fan groups have already signed a, uh, a, a sort of a letter towards the board to uh, say that they will not be engaging with him, even if he is appointed. So this is a situation that's not going to go away very quickly, Ruri, but I think it's, it is a situation where Celtic fans are probably in the right here.
3: Yeah, Just to, to just a minor correction, the, the game against Livingston was a silent protest for the first half an hour and then two banners were unfurled um, in the north stand uh, upper and then the north stand lower at the, uh, the other end of the ground. um And then the following week was the tennis ball protest at Denz Park. But like I think you've hit the nail on the head there and uh, this doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. Um, it seems like it's, it's continued to escalate and more and more, while well, you kind of touched on uh, briefly that maybe many Celtic fans mightn't have this mightn't some Celtic fans mightn't have agreed with the original uh protest against Livingston others others agree with it wholeheartedly now it seems like there's kind of a cohesive um force behind it with a number of fans groups being represented in that open letter that was issued to Michael Nicholson and I think it was yesterday the day before including fan media that I've gotten which I think is a a key point to note because if if the fan media is involved in it too that can only reinforce and push the, the message forward that this is something that the Celtic support aren't prepared to accept and um, largely on a whole at this point. And, you know, CSCs are getting behind it too. So that's the the main thing that I see. I just don't see how the club can really, where they stand at this point. Like when you see this the amount of u- a unified response that are, are essentially telling the club, like, this is not acceptable to us as a support, The Bernard Higgins himself was kind of heavily involved in criminalizing football fans. Like this has gone back 10 years that uh, fans against criminalization set up their campaign. For, uh, supporters were kettled in the Gallagate by police before. I can't remember exactly what game it was. There's a, there's a, there's a really mass sentiment that this isn't something that is likely to, to end very quickly. And it kind of just speaks to something that kind of was very apparent last year that there's, there's, there's a wide disconnect between the club, the people who run the club, and the supporters in general. Like, mm. the, and I think Andrew's Angel's performance as a manager has maybe masked over that a tad, but I just don't see how the club can't come out at this point and say, "Look, this is something that we've gotten completely wrong," and say, "This is mm. this is an appointment that we're going to we're not going to make at this point. It's 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 ridiculous." I, I, well, I just
0: just on that point of the disconnect, last year the protests were largely uh, down to the New Lenin tenure and wanting to uh, get rid of him but there seemed to be as the more angry and the more protests that happened with the fans uh, the more the board continued to ignore what was actually the sentiment toward, like of off the, go- the match going fans who were paying for season tickets, paying for merch and it almost seems like this is another similar thing where they've made a decision the fans don't agree with, have made that known that they don't agree with it and the board are almost doubling down on it as a result, as opposed to listening to what the fans are saying here. And, I, I mean, Bernard Higgins can't be that valuable of an asset that they're willing to potentially lose revenue from the fans as
3: a result of this. No, and I, I, that's why I don't understand why they're really seeing like they're tumbling the nose of the support in general and standing behind it as much as they were. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I didn't watch the, the AGM that took place last week, but I believe a number of fans kind of, repeatedly questioned uh, Nicholson and, and Ian Banker as well about why, why was this taking place and saying that this wasn't something that the support was prepared to accept and one of the, the, the most I, I, the frustrating thing for supporters I suppose is that they're not even prepared to give a straight answer to the questions that have been put in front of them so look I, I don't think that this is going to be something that is going to go away any uh, anytime soon whether that's, you know, it'd be interesting to see, is there anything, uh, obviously we're away from home this evening against Leverkusen, is there any kind of continued uh, actions planned by the supporters over there, the away fans that are travelling over, but look, Celtic Celtic last year, as you said, I've really just decided not to engage with the represent, representatives of the sport, so... One, one avenue that the supporters have, have really put their, their efforts towards is, is trying to obviously support the Celtic Trust and buy as much shares as possible. But I, I, I suppose it's worth noting as well, this isn't, this isn't exclusive to Celtic, like this happens kind of across the board. But obviously when you look at say the likes of, and, and for one example, we buy Munich trying to get the, their club at the moment to get rid of the, their association with Qatar as their sponsor. But they have avenues as kind of uh, with the fifty plus one reel and stuff like that to actually challenge the club on this. So I suppose it's trying to get as many people to support the trust as much as possible and to buy as much shares as possible. So there is a voting block for a future AGMs that maybe the club will actually be forced into um into taking action because one one comment I noticed from the trust, they said that the, the fact that, that they that so many people were behind um these like tackling this issue with Bernard Higgins. Um, if it, it kind of embarrassed Celtic because that that people were repeatedly bringing this up, but they're not in they're not interested in embarrassing Celtic exclusively. They want to force change, so that is probably the, one of the main main avenues that Celtic supporters now at the moment can take to try and enact change within the club and the structure mm-hmm. of, the, of the club itself.
0: Yeah, well, sometimes embarrassment is necessary for to force people to to actually change things. So we'll we'll see how that uh, continues over the next couple of weeks or so. I, I do want to finish off with this story. Um, it's cropped up again. Speaking of was, embarrassment. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so we're, we're talking about the World Cup bid, uh, Ireland's joint World Cup bid with the, the England and the UK. And uh, essentially what has happened this morning, on Thursday morning, Shane Castles, who's a, a Fianna Fáil senator, was on Newstalk Breakfast. He was on with OTBAM as well. And... His general point was that Ireland needs a new signature stadium if it is uh, serious about uh, adding itself as a host with the UK for this World Cup bid. and he, he's basically questioning, are Ireland serious? Because to actually host the, something like the World Cup, you're going to have to provide the best stadium infrastructure possible. So that was on Talk Breakfast, he said that. He also mentioned that Qatar have shown how serious a business uh, it is for a World Cup bid. Left aside the fact that you know several uh, hundred migrant workers have died in the build-up of that serious bid for the World Cup, um, but he's also ignoring a key factor, Phil, and that is Ireland doesn't need a third stadium. It already has two stadiums which are empty for large chunks of the year when Gareth Brooks isn't playing five uh, gigs in a row. Uh, Parky Queeve, which was uh, paid by the tax paid for by the taxpayer which lies Dortmund for most of the year as well so I mean Irish football doesn't need a new signature stadium Irish football needs several several stadiums that are not signature stadiums but are just up to scratch for
4: a professional football team yeah absolutely I mean we're going to see probably 40,000 at the Aviva for the FAI Cup final Stephen Kenny has got a lot of support behind them so there's a growing interest. There's something kind of different happening in Irish football. Now is the time to strike as in get the stadiums around the country that currently exist, get them upgraded, get them more attractive. So the state broadcaster can broadcast games from there instead of maybe sometimes thinking, no, we'll do a game from Tala because it's a nicer stadium. It looks nicer on the telly. The facilities are better. It's easier to broadcast from make all the stadiums around the country easier to access A more attractive night when you go to a game whether you're going with your family or friends so this is just show pony the usual show pony stuff that we we tend to get from from politicians we've got to think closer to home before we start thinking globally we've got to get our league in in check because we could be looking at hosting a world cup in 2030 but by then our football association could be even in more dire straits and we won't be within an ass's roar of a major competition.
0: And outside of the obvious issues with football, I mean, you've you played football in Ireland. Uh, I, I play amateur football in Ireland. Most of the amateur clubs change on the side of the pitch with no dressing rooms. Mm, um, yeah. Most of them, outside of the actual footballing side of things, Ireland doesn't have a metro that's been pushed by for another 20 wow. years. Ireland doesn't have public transport outside of Dublin. The public transport in Dublin is not good enough. Like no. the only thing that I can think of that Ireland are capable of doing in this World Cup is hosting the teams in the hotels that we have plenty of. That's the only thing I can see We're called, Ireland are of hotels, of of doing at the minute. Yeah. Loads of hotels, so that's fine. We can host them. But if you look at the World Cup bids of the last couple of years, like Qatar have got it because they can afford it. Because let's face it, that's like they—they're one of the only countries that can afford it. Yeah, but, but we America, don't want
4: to Canada, themselves them, yeah.
0: No, exactly. America, Canada, Mexico. I mean, Canada and America are two of the richest countries in the world, and they are sharing their bids because their infrastructure cannot handle a World Cup. Yeah. How does Ireland seriously think the senators who? How do they seriously think Ireland has the infrastructure to do this?
4: I I, I don't know. Like, I, to be honest, I thought it was I, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought it was kind of some sort of thing. I didn't even realize that they were serious about this. But yeah, I I, I think. You know, it's a it's a whole different conversation, like because there's there's so much that you have to unpack before you even think about trying to get a World Cup to here. Because like football is on its knees in this country. It's starting, to, as I said. There's certain things that are showing signs of progress. There's always a passion for football in this country, and I so say we're going to see it this weekend. And you know, we're seeing it even with the with the, the national teams, both Stephen Kenny's team and Vera Powell's side as well.
0: Mm. Rory, final word on the, the World Cup. What's your thoughts on the the situation over the last 24 hours?
3: I think Phil's kind of covered it very extensively there. Um, but, um, yeah, look, uh, again, this this is something that's kind of going to completely re- keep cropping up again and again. Like, uh, our, uh, football in Ireland, we need to kind of start to focus on growing the game uh Domestically, specifically, first of all, I know Vinnie Perth was uh, discussing Stephen Kenny after um, when he was on Premier League com- country for off the ball in the weekend, and he he made mention of the, the numerous players that have been brought up in through the the Dundalk system and through Rovers as well that have are ended up now kind of making their their presence felt on the national side, and that's where we should be fo- making the priority our our, our focus the priority, and um, and I just look even the the, the interview on OTBM this morning there's not really much more that you can say on it. It was, it was a ridiculous enough argument. And I think it was countered fairly effectively by Jair and um, uh, on OTVM. So look, I, I, I can't see, I can't see us getting, uh, being successful with the world cup bit anyway. And I, you know, I don't, I don't really see any, any merits to building a new stadium when considering we have Park and Pro Park and the Aviva already. And, you know, a new stadium is ultimately probably going to just lie dormant. And we've seen already in different countries that have been successful World Cup bids in the last 10 years, what the the sort of divides that, that things like this can lead to in society where um, people feel left behind and and are in Brazil in particular, where kind of excommunicated basically from their own areas of where they lived on the basis of building stadiums and that were, that were just completely unnecessary. So look, um, I don't think that, I don't, I'm not too sure whether we're going to be successful anyway, but it's certainly something we do not need. Um, and there's definitely more meritable um, places where funds, funding and focus can be given in the future.
0: Yeah. yeah, the senators who are looking to build these new stadiums should have to go and read the investigation from The Guardian. Uh, That was done a couple of years ago on the Brazil stadiums, and what's happening over there right now, and what happened to get those stadiums off the ground. So, yeah, I think there's a lot more pressing issues at hand in Irish society and in Irish football that uh, a World Cup bid is just nothing more than a a distraction and a sort of show showpiece pony that they can show that they actually did something instead, but. That's where we'll park the conversation for this evening. Phil Egan had to drop off there; he had to run. So, Rory, thanks very much for
2: your uh, contribution this evening.
3: Thanks very much, and it was a pleasure as always. We've had some great
2: days and great nights and good memories. I hope that the people of Ireland have got. I know that they've got the memories. I know they cherish them, and I know that they've enjoyed the days that when they've done something that they've never done before. They go to a World Cup as part of it. A couple of times. I've enjoyed that the European Championship. Thank you for the day those endless days, those sacred days you gave me. President phoned me and said, uh, would you like uh, the, the job is yours if you'd like it? And I said I would like it. End of story. I won't forget a single day, believe me. Well, you know, we're 28 to 1, I think we're quoted as, and uh, we're not expected to do anything in this competition. We just hope to surprise a few people.
4: This kick by San in goes all and Houghton!
2: Nowadays, you see, they've changed it. Everybody in Europe does a little bit of what we did. Everybody in Europe. But they've changed the name, the FIFA guys. They call it pressing, because they don't want to tell us that we started it. We call it putting people under pressure.
3: Malta nil, Republic of Ireland two, and history has been made in Malta. Jack Charlton achieving
2: his victory achieving his ambition. We've qualified for the goal to Italy and we've done it ourselves. I'm absolutely delighted, not only for me, but for all the fans. I mean. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there! And then I saw David come in and I'm not the greatest believer in centre backs taking penalties. And then David went back, put the ball down again and went, sent the goalkeeper away and went, put it in and it went fantastic. We're there, we're in the last eight for the first time in my history and it's magic I'm, I'm delighted <laughs> for the lads. And good luck the people back home. Great. Thought they were a good time. Byrne came to me and he said, our boss, he said, when we get to Rome, this you'll get us in to see the Pope, won't you? Well, that was where the final was going to be played and I don't think they had a prayer again. But they're they're the final. <laughs> We prepared properly, we had a little bit of sun. we ate well, and we drank very little. We're going to change that tonight. You see, you see, it's a bit like religion, isn't it? And and, and football's a bit like religion, isn't it? And, and Jack's... He'd be like a sort of, he's
3: supposed to be like a
2: pauper or a bishop or something. He would. But easy, onto it comes Hout, and Hout with a shot, and it's there! I went into the players and we were we just sat in the dressing room and we were getting changed and everything, and then somebody come and said to me, would you come out back on the pitch? I said, what for? He said, the crowd won't go home. I, I just remember, I just cried. You know, it was time for me to leave. I'd been there for 10 years and it was time for me to leave. And uh, and I did.
0: All right, so that is us done on this week's Team 33. Thanks as ever to you for listening. If you want to listen back to that podcast, you can get it on the OTB Podcast Network, which is available in the OTV Sports app as well. If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel as well for more football content. We'll be back again in the same time, same place next week. But until then, take it away, Johan.